This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. What's going on? Oh, sweet Lord, it has been a week. It is for us, if you're listening, if you're coming in on this, this is the week leading up to the holidays. And um, we do celebrate Christmas up in this house. So it's all, everyone's mm-hmm. very excited. Oh, I bet. And I think yeah, this episode will come out after Christmas, but we're recording it before that's Christmas. Right. So that's we right. hope you, know, you had a great Christmas, you know, in advance. <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. It takes time to edit and do all of the producing stuff with it. Um, also, we would like to announce right now that this is this will be our finale episode for season three. Right. And then we'll be back in the new year in January with yep. season four. That's right. And we've got new fun uh, things happening in January. So we need some time to plan for that and get ready for our new season. So it'll be a couple weeks and we'll be back to you. And so if you just are you're like, oh, my God, I missed you guys so much. You, you know, we do have almost 100 episodes so far. <gasps> oh, we have to throw a party or something when we I know. hit 100. We will hit 100 in our um in our fourth season. So we definitely will throw a party. So that is so fun. <laughs> um, yes. This is, so this week, Evren, <laughs> with with work, with everything, I have to tell you the story. I was like dying to tell you this story earlier, but I'm like, no, I'm going to save it for the podcast. Ooh, like, all right. Because tell me, tell me. It's, it's one of those like shame stories a little bit. Actually, <laughs> okay. it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be because I love myself. That's right. And I'm, no shame. you know, I, d- I am happy to be alive and I'm not worried about aging a little, you know, here's the thing. We all want to be beautiful and we all want to be uh, wanted and sexy. And yeah, I have a little it's it's a little hard getting a little older because uh, you're just like, oh, OK, yeah. So this is what's happening. OK, so let me just start from the beginning of my story. Mm-hmm. So, um, hey, guys, by the way, follow us on TikTok, Rom Crime mm-hmm. on TikTok. And we do, you know, silly stuff and just we mm-hmm. have a blast on that channel, our um, social media outlet. So I had... 
I, I think I had liked somebody's or something, you know, because you scroll and you can kind of like, and I think you accidentally follow people by doing that or whatever. It's not, oh. it's not a big Yeah, deal. I don't understand the TikTok at yeah. all. I try and I just don't understand. I mean, I understand sort of. Yeah. Well, okay, I will so say there's someone? two parts to TikTok. There's people who just watch it because it's like so you could just go down a TikTok rabbit hole for hours of like, mm-hmm. I mean, if you like DIY in any way, if you like. Even true crime, like we love, you know. Right. Or what else? There's, you know, people do the dances. Um, I'm yeah. a big fan of like. I just feel like every time I open it, they someone, it's just that my phone starts like screaming at it's me. It's true. like automatic loud noise yep. like, in your face. And I'm like, I don't know how we got here. I just clicked on I, the TikTok. Yeah, that, I think they should like. <laughs> I'm not 100 that. years old, but I do realize I sound like I am. Well, no, but it is that thing. So here we go. So I'm, I was like going through it and I was on like a hole where I was just like watching videos and maybe I like something. I don't know. We don't even like that many people. people not that many people like us or follow us or whatever. <laughs> um, what happened was I guess I accidentally followed somebody. There was a past. Uh, the I did this one where my husband, uh, you, you can have like an automated voice. And I it, it was like, um, my husband says I could never get away with murder. My hair would get everywhere. That's the one that I oh that yeah I, did, I remember if you that want one. to go. Somebody posted on that channel or on that sorry that uh, video, video saying why is a millennial following me? <laughs> <gasps> and so I went to their po- their um, page and I was like. This person looks like they're in high school. First of all, you should have like a restricted account. Excuse me, Missy. But secondly, yeah. I was just like, that is so funny. And I, I should have screen grabbed it because it was really, I was just like laughing my ass off. And so I wrote, I have no idea. LOL. And then I just, <laughs> and then I like unfollowed her. But I was like, <laughs> oh my God, this is so stupid. But you know what the main thing is, Av? What? People don't know this. I'm not a millennial. I'm a Gen Z, I think. Okay. Yeah, I'm like, I'm like, the next year was millennial. So the next year is the elder millennial. And I think if you guys know me, I am a little goofy and batshit crazy. So age is just a number, motherfuckers. Yeah. (laughs) But actually, I laughed so hard. I was like, why is a millennial following me? (laughs) (laughs) You're like, I actually don't know how I did that. (laughs) Um, But calm down. And um, can I speak to your mother? Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I was like, you should have a restricted account. Oh, my God. But that's yeah, just like, me. I didn't mean to follow you. That's hilarious. That's something I would do is accidentally follow like a bunch of high school I have people. no idea how I did it. I Again, that's how I. Know. That's why I stay away from the TikTok. I guess this <laughs> podcast is not for the Gen Y. Wait, which ones are the Gen Zers? No, Gen Z. I'm Gen Y. Wait, I'm Gen X? Gen X. <laughs> I'm not Gen yeah, Z. Yeah, I think She's this probably is Gen Z. Z. Do you think, don't you think it's funny how like younger, and I'm sure I did this too, but you, you, you sort of are coming of age and you're a young adult and you're like, look at those old fucking idiots up there. You know, it's like, (laughs) and then when you're in that old idiot place, you're kind of like, oh yeah, young people are stupid too. We're all stupid, but at least we have more knowledge now. Yeah, we have more experience at the very least. (laughs) Anyways, it's not going to stop me from ticking my talk. I'm going to tick my talk. Tick your talk. Handstand and a pussy pop just for you because that's my favorite thing to do. Um, but yeah, so that was besides work and everything. That was pretty much my week. I also cut my oldest, my daughter's hair, my eight year old's hair. Nice. Like I have off? to. Yeah. Like well, she we took about six inches off. She had really long hair. She hasn't had a haircut yeah. since she was four. And she's yeah, she eight. Does have, she did have really long hair. So, wow. Yeah. Did Anyways, you do a good that job? That was my week. How about you? What did Are you, you guys do still this friends? week? Um, I worked 
a bunch. I went to, I did go see a show oh. with um, our friend Shane. I went, of course, like, you know, any, I feel like anytime I'm like, yeah, let's, we're going to go do something fun. And the next day they're like, P.S., the pandemic is back. I know. You know, and I'm like, oh. I went, so we went and saw live music at the Troubadour in West Hollywood. It was super fun. So fun. Um, but it was like, you know, an indoor concert venue. I just took a rapid at-home COVID test yesterday. It's negative. Great. Because um, I am traveling also for the whole. I'm like, I always get on an airplane right as the pandemic explodes. So it's <laughs> just like, it's always by accident. Um, but yeah, so this week was like work. I had that one really fun outing, which was nice. And then mostly just packing and organizing and getting ready to travel. Fun. So I mean, many, like, you know, Christmas shopping, yeah. last minute things. You're like, oh, shoot. I... That person, I forgot to get a present for this person that's going to be there. And <laughs> so, yeah, it's been, you know, I'm ready to, to go have the holiday. Yes. Prepping for the holiday. Yeah. Same. But I'm very excited to go be with family <gasps> and to be, it's weirdly like winterish outside here today. It's all rainy and it's gray. It's cold. And cold, but I'm going to somewhere even colder. I'm going right. to Chicago. Oh, yeah, baby. Yeah. So I was like packing the long johns that I don't ever ever use <laughs> well even in um i have some friends in washington state in spokane they're going to like a wedding on new year's eve and she, she said it's going to be negative five degrees in spokane washington yikes, yikes. it's like she's like the it's church is across the wedding, street I but <laughs> i think i'm just gonna <laughs> run across yeah because you're just not used to that weather i mean even in when we were even when we were in new york it really never got that that cold like Maybe Not in the teens, once in a very rare, yeah. but mostly in the like the twenties and thirties. Yeah, yeah. So, and you just dress differently too when you live in a place that gets cold. So I realized, you know, here you don't have like I don't have gloves. I don't have them. Oh, <laughs> I yeah. just realized I'm like, oh, I have scarves and hats that like stuck around from my yeah. New York, you know, stuff. But oh, I can't, you maybe know, I should run you hilarious. down because I have a bunch of stuff. I kept everything except for my coat, which I burned as soon as I got here. <laughs> my big, uh, <laughs> my big puffer coat. I was like, screw <gasps> this. I hate this. I feel like I'll just grab some at the airport. That's probably a good idea. Yeah, and they so might like have $80 some gloves with you. <laughs> um, I'm sure they will. Yeah. Well, you know, speaking of New York and speaking of dressing interesting so our rom-com today is mm -hmm. and you and Avern um Avern actually chose this and I want to say some one of our listeners mentioned doing this one it could have been our listener Ashley but I'm not certain it, or but anywho so we're covering serendipity a movie that um a rom-com you know a very straightforward rom-com that came out a in very straightforward rom-com 2001 and um, it like it stars John Cusack, who for mm -hmm. a, for quite a long time was sort of like this rom com icon person. But I have some thoughts on that. And then also Kate Beckinsale, um, who's the other you know they're the the couple. But mm -hmm. what I but what made me think of like the clothing is it was in the early two thousands, and that's when we, I lived in New York. You know that's when I sort of right. moved to New York in two thousand three, and it's like her outfits were exactly what we were wearing you mm -hmm. know it's like the clunkier yeah. shoe with like a slight flare in the the jean leg yeah uh, yeah those early 2000s fashion was was very specific it was yeah i We're, liked i liked the chunky shoes i, did <laughs> I still too. do i think you know it's definitely all that's coming back it's funny though the, the stuff that's like the not cool stuff is like lingers in the 40 year old population like they don't let it go 
But now Ugh. that the younger, the Gen Z, excuse me, Gen Zers are all like doing the chunky shoes in like mm-hmm. a different way. Um, also, fun fact that I heard. Did you know l- less teenagers are having sex than ever before in, since they've been doing? I mean, I'm not sure how they get that data, but I found that I interesting. I did not know that. <laughs> yes, I because that. I was reading an article about abortion and it was like it uh-huh. was in the New York Times and they were talking about who actually is getting the majority of the abortions. And it's usually a woman in their 20s, upper 20s, and oftentimes already a mother, not the teens, not the whatever. So right, not not teenagers. I just thought I that was, was I, interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't know. I did not know that. Um, well, I guess good for you, teens. You guys keeping it chased. I guess. <laughs> I don't know. I, I kind of think, you know, have some fun. Have it safely. Don't hurt your heart or your soul. But like, you know, I oh, they also said the reason that there's been less abortion, uh, less abortions in teens and different you know places is because the contraception is better nowadays than it used to be that's true that prop that makes a lot of which sense. i'm like it's much easier god to be bless safe. it yeah. god bless it yeah um okay so i guess should i just just get into our just rom-com into here it. serendipity and it's it did you is, ever go there yes i did Me too, yeah so mm-hmm. they have that famous hot chocolate yeah so tell but tell them about what the hot chocolate really is so it's frozen hot chocolate right yeah Oh, am I? Oh, okay. Yeah, I, was like, I just, it's been I was while. like, I yeah, just no, think it's that's like a the funniest thing. <laughs> mug of, so it's like a chocolate frosty freeze. I don't know. It's not quite a milkshake. It was good. I remember that I liked yeah. it. I'm pretty sure I only went there because of this movie. So oh, yeah, I went there because everyone, it's like off of Central Park, I think, right? The Upper West mm-hmm. Side. It's the Upper West Side. It's in the 70s, yeah. if I remember correctly. And yes, it's and, a rite of passage. Um, yeah. Everybody wants to go who comes to visit, too. Yeah. You have the frozen hot chocolate, and it is good. Mm-hmm. I like chocolate. I like anything chocolate. Yeah, you're right. It is weird, though. I'm like, how can it be frozen hot? <laughs> but it's fine. Yeah. I'm just a little, I was a little cunty 20-year-old. So, um, so yes, it's a real place. It is a restaurant. And so this um, let's see. Who else do I need to tell you is in this movie? I don't think I need to necessarily tell you anything else. Oh, I know. There's a couple of Sex in the City characters, oh, which is also my head perfect because it's like this was the height. This is like the height of Sex in the City as well. Yes, the 2001. Yes. Yeah, it would have been like its pre like peak in popularity as too. And we get both um, Aiden and Natasha. Uh-huh. I was like losing my mind because I. I had watched this movie maybe, but like in a, like, uh, I don't think I watched this movie. I had to watch this and really watch it for the first time this, like this week. So I was like, nice. and because I've been watching the reboot of Sex and the City the, um, and just like that, which, oh, oh yeah, I had so many thoughts. I'm behind. Oh. I have so many thoughts yeah. too. We'll save that for a, a different We will, episode. we will. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I was really excited. Um, okay, so guys, you know how I like to give you um, a little bit of some reviews like some past reviews so i have two yeah we're uh, guardian man the guardian the british guardian is really coming in all hot they are just (laughs) the 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 critiquiest critics ever so here here we go they say there are some moments when you find yourself in a chick move in chick movie hell and there's not a thing you can do about it it's as if Virgil and Dante blundered into a new circle no one knew about where sullen moviegoers are condemned to watch quirky vulnerable guys and attractive women meeting cute in New York department stores doing their last minute Christmas shopping and then playfully squabbling over some item forever 
I just they're like so so they're saying that this movie is like being in hell being forced to watch this movie um, but it is wow. directed by a British born man named Peter Chelsum and he um, and also obviously Kate Beckinsale is British as well so that I'm like oh god you 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 guys I'm just gonna keep finding your fun little quips on the internet just always always find the Guardian reviews for every movie yeah and if this is the writer, if it's like the same writer over and over again, we should see oh, if we can track that, that would too. Be amazing. Like, it's just this particular, they, this particular. Because oftentimes they don't say, critic. oh, this is, I think it might be. It's Peter Bradshaw. So we're going to look that up. Peter oh. Bradshaw. Are you an unhappy person inside? Like, I really want to know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, uh, you know what? You hate love so much. To say the least, whenever he does write like a little cunty, it's funny. Mm hmm. So I'm, oh I'm, yeah, I support that. I guess he's an and it's entertaining. I support I support funny, funny yeah, me critiques. Too. Um, man, okay, so that's pretty. Yeah, it's hell. This movie is like being in <laughs> I hell. Just love it. Um, by the way, I got we got a new a router. This is just side note, everyone, um, because my internet has been like just going off. It's been so bad, and I think it's gonna work. I took you off internet for a second because I couldn't see you. We're, we're, we're not together this time because she is about to jump on a plane and, and you know, it's the holidays. It's the holidays. Um, it's the holiday season. (laughs) I love it. So, okay. So here's one. And this is a, I'm enjoying like, um, audience member reviews. Stephanie, Stephanie Adams in the audience, uh, review section of Google says the movie might be 20 years old, but you'd never know it. Hmm. It's a sweet fantasy we probably all secretly harbor, considering how difficult it is it is to find the one with whom to spend our lives. For everyone poo-pooing how Sarah and Jonathan end their relationships to search for their true loves, keep in mind they end the relationships before they marry. They recognize the people they're engaged to aren't a good fit. Sarah's musician boyfriend is nearly completely absorbed by his musical career. And Natasha, I mean you know Jonathan's fiance well fidelity isn't exactly her strong suit and she says she only gave the movie four stars instead of five primarily of how silly the character Lars is which I John Corbett you know I don't agree I would not diss it for that (laughs) by the way is she says she's a wonder he's a wonderful actor but too bad he plays such a silly unbelievable character Ironically enough, there really was serendipity and perhaps destiny in John Corbett's life. He was set up with a date with Bo Derek. They'd been together for just over 20 years and, and married in 2020. Destiny? They met when this movie was being made. You decide. I'm like, ah! I love that someone took the time out <laughs> okay, to write that facts. review. So now we know that he has like a little... Yeah. That he met uh, his wife whilst yeah. making serendipity. So the... M- a real it is, and rom-com. so the movie opens, and it's it's John Kusiak and Kate Beckinsale. They don't know each mm-hmm. other. They're in a department store, and they're it's mayhem. It's intense, crazy mayhem. And I just went to a store yesterday, and I was like, with the Omicron variant happening right now, I was just like a little bit nervous, mm-hmm. even though I just got my booster and I had a mask on. But people were just like, Target was terrifying. So many to be people. in. Oh yeah, I, well it's also the week. Of- leading up to Christmas yeah. so everybody is out shopping yeah they're like at Bloomingdale's and it is packed to the yep. gills with folks trying to get last minute Christmas yes, gifts and they movie, both right? eye this cashmere the last black cashmere glove and they have a cute quippy little mm-hmm. whatever 
talk and eventually she she gets the gloves and then you the next scene you see them they're at serendipity having uh frozen hot chocolates together and i'm like weird because you know the chemistry is like flying i'm kind of air quoting here yeah a little because i I, what did you think about john cusack i okay let me just say this and it's just an opinion i thought kate beckinsale was really just lovely very easy and then with john cusack in this character in this film his name is jonathan her name's Sarah, although she refuses to tell him that for a while. Um, I just felt like he was just, it was, he grinded on my nerves a little bit. Like he was like so harsh, like so into her that it felt stocky, like stockish. Yeah. Like the uh, like the immediate, like, you're my person. I love you. We, I gave you the gloves. You must be my girlfriend now. Yeah, I don't know. I felt like, I mean, he's got the, like the like, yeah. kind of quirky romantic lead thing going for him he's not like an obvious right. like swab <laughs> yeah. debonair guy but yeah i can see what you're saying for sure i felt like the greatest chemistry in this oh movie my god i agree 100 percent. like their their friendship i was like i believe same, this same very so much i think you're right maybe that maybe much. i'm just not buying the chemistry between kate and john john but and right. what what we find out is she is very uh, into um, the stars. Yeah, she said Destiny. they talk about it. Serendipity, you know, it's, it means it's a, a fortunate accident. Except she says she doesn't really believe in accidents. She says fate's behind everything. We make our own decisions. Fate sends us little signs, and it's how we read the signs that determines if we're happy or not. I was like, okay. I'm like, mm-hmm, I had to like mm-hmm. think about that, like. I had to rewind twice to hear that. And then he asks for her number and she said, <laughs> if it was meant, if we're meant to meet again, then we'll meet again. But then he like really presses her and he says, my name is Jonathan. And she says, Merry Christmas, Jonathan, not giving her name. He's about to get on the subway and he realizes that he forgot his scarf at the restaurant, which is, I swear to God, I did all the time in New York. It'd be something. Cause you have so yeah, much, you every, just like bring your whole life with mm-hmm. you in New York. Yes, you do. And especially in the winter. So many layers. (laughs) So many layers. So as he's going back, she also forgot the bag with the gloves in it. What the hell, lady? So they stare deeply into each other's eyes and he sputters, let's go do something. Because right there, that was fate bringing them back together. Right. Like they parted ways. And if they were meant to meet again, they would. And look, here they are meeting again. Just like 15 minutes later. So they go skating in Central Park. There's that cute little rink. Did you ever go there? Mm-hmm. That you, um, I did go there once. I feel like I tried to go there many times, but it's no, it's, it's never that packed. sparse. It's usually like a, hours, <laughs> yeah. hours of waiting. Um, which is why that's I only the one went we went to. I too. Yeah, Bryan I never Park went one. to the one in Central Park because it was always packed, yeah. and I'm like, Ugh. it's also sort of East Side. So I was like, how am I even going to get there? I don't care. Um, then okay, so they go skating. <laughs> she mentioned she mentioned she misses her mom terribly. They're having this conversation. He replies, "If I were her, I'd miss you too." I'm like, okay, I'm. Yeah, you're like okay. Yeah, sorry. exactly. They're like, asking each other questions, just and she falls normal. Oh my god, Avrin, she falls hard on the ice. Hard. I laughed out loud. I laughed out loud because I'm <laughs> one of those people that it, when I see someone <laughs> fall for some reason my instinct is to I, I, I just laugh and this is like no not a cute leading lady in a rom-com <laughs> fall. it's like are you Sorry. okay I just also blew my mic out but no yeah I, I wrote down holy shit the stunt woman just like bit her you know she just bit it so hard 
like, then you, the next really thing you felt. see, you see, you know, he's like kind of tending to her wounds and he, cause she hurt her arm and he's looking at her freckles and he's like, Oh, look at your freckles. They're in the, the shape of Cassiopeia. And then he, you know, waxes poetic about Cassiopeia and they look up at the stars and I'm like, you can't see the stars in Central Park, but okay, that's fine. Whatever. And it was just, she was like <laughs> becoming under his spell and it felt like, oh, they just like are meant to be fate. So let's see. Fate is, she's, I wrote, fate is telling us to back off. He pleads no. She says to write his name on an, she says, yes, write your name and number on a $5 bill. And if it comes back to me, then it's meant to be. You don't have to, you don't have a perfect night with a stranger and then leave it all to chance. So they decide, okay, she decides, okay, well, let's do this elevator thing. Let, right. They ran into the Waldorf. If we end up on the same floor, then we're meant to be together. And through crazy, weird, quirky hell. Right. Yeah. They both happen to, they do pick the same yeah. floor, which is unlikely exactly. with all those floors to choose from. They both pick 23. But then an obnoxious child gets on John Cusack. And there's a moment where they get stuck the in between 15 and 16. And I'm just like, oh, I'd be punching that. I'm kidding. I would never hurt somebody. But I would be actually having a panic attack because I'm like, and the dad starts doing, he's like, oh, well, there. Yeah. it starts to go again. He's like, okay. Um, so she says, you don't have to understand. You have to have faith. And he's like, faith in what? And she's like, faith in destiny. And then she, as she's getting into her cab or leaving, whatever, she goes, it's Sarah, by the way. Uh, oh, that was before they get in the, the elevator. That's right before. And then. Right. And yes. she also wrote her name. She did. Book, she wrote right? her name and number. So he did the $5 bill. And she, uh, so he did the $5 bill. And then yes. she did the Love in the Time of Cholera exactly. book. And she was going to sell it to a used bookstore the next day. And if exactly. he finds it. Yes. Then it's and Jenna, so they, you know, they aren't together anymore, or you know they don't see each other he so and then we it like time passes and Jonathan is engaged to be married in this like passing of time and I couldn't tell exactly how much time was it seven years it was like something like it was two years yeah it was a decent amount of time enough time that he yeah. <laughs> met someone got over Sarah ish met someone else yep. dated her long enough to propose and then was engaged yeah. to her long enough for the wedding to be here they don't it's got to be um, a couple years so yeah and they don't really Jerry, tell us how so much it, time they're at the engagement party or you know leading up to the wedding and Jeremy Pivens is his best man giving a speech and you can tell this he's really people are laughing he's cracking jokes and there's a quick comment from and I have to mention because it's just a sad moment I think it's just like a flicker but the dad says um thank god he gave up documentary filmmaking i just was like that's really sad you see a flash in john kuzak's oh, eyes yeah. being like oh that's what i really wanted to do and then this is I when i was like oh my god it's natasha that's his fiance holy shit and he lay he leaves yep. the engagement party at the waldorf astoria and he is walking and you know how they used to sell the books on the on the sidewalk in New York. So he sees he sees the book, not mm -hmm. the book with the name yeah. with her phone number, but he's been searching for all these years and, uh, you know, disappointed. He's like, OK. And he's talking yeah. to his best friend, Jeremy, and he's uh, he says that Hallie, which is Natasha, is like the Godfather, too, or the Godfather part two. Mm. That was an incredible movie. Might be better than the original. Right. But don't. But it doesn't matter how much you love The Godfather Part Two, you still have to see the original to understand and appreciate the sequel. And Sarah is the original. Oh, I know. All right. And then doesn't... I don't want to jump forward 
too much if I am, but doesn't he also like oh, yes. the name Sarah keeps like yeah coming at him hard? Like everywhere he goes, some guy's yeah. singing a song about Sarah, the name of the the person who's going to cut yes. his hair is named yes. Sarah, but it's not his normal person. Yes, absolutely. So she wasn't available. Peaking his interest. He's like, I'm, I am I marrying the right person? You know, is it possible? Could I? Yeah, he's like all the signs, and that he's is scary. You know, interpret really all like, the is signs. This the right person for me. Um, then let's see. Oh, did I cut? Oh, here we go. I I was cracking up when we get to the home of Sarah. Well, we cut to her, and she's a therapist now, and um, sh- her boyfriend asks her to marry him by like wrapping a ring in like Russian doll style, like. Open, 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 open. And then, you know, she accepts it's, you know, it's, uh, what's his name? Corden. Aiden. Corbett. John Corbett. He is so adorable. John Corbett. You guys. This is what that reviewer is talking about. But like, he's like, I want to say a flout. No, it's not a flout. It's like a, it's, he plays this instrument. It's like from. I think, oh. I try. I looked it up, and I I don't want to butcher it, but I think it's like a, it's like a shway, something with an like S-H. clarinet it's almost. A type of um, I think it is kind of like a type of yeah, yeah like and or he flute. is like you know hippy dippy cutie patootie, like his chest open in one of those you know eastern tops like silk, and he's mm-hmm. <laughs> he's just like his hair hair is blowing in the wind. He's like so he's like. He's like a popular. Yeah. It's it's very funny. So he proposes to her, but the yes, ring doesn't he knows fit. That she's he's like, don't read into this. Yeah. And they're like, we'll just get it she's fit. Like but he is like jamming mm-hmm. it on her finger. I was like, dude, maybe chill the hell out, you know? Right. And then after she accepts, he's like, I got to go call blah, de blah, his manager to tell him that you accepted so Honeymoon. we can arrange the tour yeah. around our honeymoon or something and then so he's about to go on tour we cut to um we cut to jonathan and he ends up finding that bag with the black glove in it and he takes the receipt to the department so now he's like okay this is fate i gotta find this girl so i guess her credit card was number was on it so he goes to the department store there's a whole shenanigans with eugene levy who plays the uh yeah yeah i mean i the bloomingdale's counterman who's hilarious like thank you for always being amazing yeah, he's, huh he, he's just like so 100 percent right. all the time and they're they eventually you know they can't look it up so they go out to a warehouse to look up her thing they find the address and he goes i mean it's just like a wild goose chase and then sarah is also having she's feeling this as well she's feeling like she's been called to new york to find him and she arrives at with her best friend who is Molly Shannon. Mm-hmm. And as they get off the plane, she, or, you know, in the airport, she confesses that she actually just is going to let fate take her wherever it wants to go because she's having cold feet a little bit too. And honestly, she's hoping to find Jonathan. Um, yeah. Jonathan gets stalkery again. She just slightly misses him again and again and again. And then <laughs> eventually Lars shows up. She actually breaks up with him because she just knows in her heart. It's not right. Uh, right and there's all these like funny near miss moments too like so molly shannon it turns out 
was a college friend yeah. of the of Natasha or Hallie, the girl that Jonathan's going to get married to, and she invites them. Yeah. So she invites Sarah and Molly Shannon to come to their wedding, and they're like, "Oh yeah, totally. We'll be there tomorrow." Oh yes, he and does because he's he like, like he figures airplane? out of. He did okay. So this is how it happens, yo. This is how it happened. So it's the they do the rehearsal, and <laughs> Natasha Hallie gives him a wedding gift. I get it's it's customary to give your spouse your wedding gift the night before, I guess, and and she gives him a book, and it's okay. the book, the time of love and the time of cholera. He opens it. With in the uh, cab afterwards right. with Jeremy Pivens in the seat, and he it's the number he's got it. It's like got her name in it. Yeah. So Hallie actually gives him the book that he's been searching for because she's like, "You always look at this book yeah. every time we're in a bookstore, but you don't own a copy." I know. So and then he's Hallie. like, "Okay," and he finds out where she lives. <laughs> he and Jeremy Pivens hop on a plane. We find out that Jeremy Pivens and his wife have separated, though they seemed really, really happy. Jeremy Pivens is basically like, "I want what you have right now. This like love, this passion, this romance." They get to the house and they see. They see uh, Sarah's little sister who looks a lot like her having sex with her boyfriend through the window, which is just plain sight, just plain sight with the window. <laughs> yeah, for everyone to see. They but do. they do. And so he's like, Sarah, he's so disappointed. Similar. But in his so, heart, he thinks, you know what? This just means probably I shouldn't marry her. That's what it means. If I'm chasing somebody this married, how? hard. Um, Oh, and actually the way they break up, uh, sorry, the way Lars and, and Sarah break up is they're again, at, she goes again to the skating rink and he, he's, Lars sits by her and he says, look at those stars. They all have names, you know. And she remembers, of course, Cassiopeia. And then again, I wrote, also, you cannot see the stars in Central Park, <laughs> but I don't want to, I like the romance, romance. I like, listen, <laughs> if you ever thought you could move to New York and just see a starry night, it doesn't happen. So... Yeah, upstate. Just don't move to New York for that reason. Upstate. Because I feel like. <laughs> but yeah, they break up. Um, okay, so yeah, then. Don't move to New York City so for that reason. So then she gets on a plane to go home and she's just, you know, just enters the plane and the. Wait, what are they called? <laughs> I almost said stewardess, but flight attendant. The flight attendant uh, is flight making attendant. for somebody. A flight attendant. And the $5 bill that she sees being passed has Jonathan and his number. And she just basically steals it and just runs off the plane. She's like, I'm sorry. Just trust me. I got to go. And then I know it's like if they've shut the. But they won't just let you off the plane either. Like once you're on, if they if she's passing I mean, out headphones for sale, correct. like you're actually probably and in the air. So she's like <laughs> running back and. um. She gets, she finds out where he lives and all these things and she's making her way. And it's the, it's the same day and Jonathan and Jeremy Pivens are kind of just having this little postmortem and Jeremy's like, um, what do you need? Like, do you, what can I, what kind of, cause he's a writer. He, he writes obituaries for the New York times. And he's like, do you, what kind of pep top? You want a pep top? You want like when God shuts the door, he opens a window and Jonathan's like, well, how about telling me I did the right thing? And he says, I don't have to tell you. I wrote it. And he's like, what's this? It's your obituary. Turns out I had writer's block penning. I had writer's block penning your best man's speech. And that's what ended up coming out. Blame it on the day, day job. <laughs> so he writes him an obituary. Your and then obituary. <laughs> he leaves. He gives him the note. He leaves to go back to make up with Courtney, his 
wife because he's like, you know what, this is, and it's we. It's rare mm-hmm. to see Jeremy Pivens in such an earnest role, and I thought he did a. I thought he did a good job because, like you said, the chemistry between right. the two of them yeah. felt like a real friendship. He did, which was nice. But he said, so reading it, he says, you know, the Greeks yeah, didn't. Did. Oh, that he says, you know, the Greeks didn't write obituaries. They only asked one question uh, when a man died. After a man died, did he have passion? Um, and let's see. Here's here's the. Uh, Here's the letter. He says, Jonathan Traeger, prominent, or not the letter, it's the obituary. He says, Jonathan Traeger, prominent prominent television producer for ESPN, died last night from complications of losing his soulmate and his fiancée. He was blank years old and soft-spoken and obsessive. That's true. Traeger never looked the part of a hopeless romantic, but in the final days Mm -hmm. of his life, he revealed an unknown side of his psyche. This hidden quasi Jungian persona surfaced during the Agatha Christie-like pursuit for his long-reputed soulmate, which I like that, Agatha Christie-like. Only a writer would write that. A woman whom he only spent a few precious hours with. Sadly, Mm -hmm. the protracted search ended late Saturday night in complete and utter failure. Yet even in certain defeat, the courageous Traeger secretly clung to the belief that life is not merely a series of meaning, meaningless accidents or coincidences, but rather it's a tapestry of events that culminate in an exquisite, sublime plan. That's what he said, plan. Um, anyways, it goes on and on, but I just kind of thought that was a fun way to wrap up. You know, he's, he also says, ultimately, Jonathan concluded that if he, if where's to... If he's to live life in harmony with the universe, we must all possess a powerful faith in what the ancients used to call fatum, what we currently refer to as destiny. So then we see, yeah, then we see, um, Very of course, sweet letter. we see mm-hmm. Miss Sarah at the back of the skating rink and just kind of looking up at the stars. And guess what? Jonathan goes there too. And they have like a beautiful moment and it's, they're back with their soulmate. And it's yeah. basically, that's where the movie, it's a hap- happily ever after movie for sure. Yeah. And then, yeah. They, <laughs> and then they celebrate their anniversary back at Bloomingdale's <laughs> and Eugene Levy is still there, that's but they cute. go there every year because it's where they met. That's where they met. They met at Bloomingdale's, so that's where they celebrate. Yeah, and then he's Eugene like, Levy's no food or drink like, near the, like, near get the away clothes. From the get out, get or out. whatever, the counter. So, he's very... So there you have it. There is serendipity. And it was fun to <laughs> watch. And it feels very, like, early 2000, very 90s-ish rom-com. But, but I think it was a joyful uh, journey for me. For my, I think it was mm-hmm. my first time, honestly. I don't think I'd seen it before. So I really liked it. Yeah. Oh, that's so funny. I would have thought yes. for sure you would have seen it before. But um, yeah, and it's holidays. It's very Christmassy, New York time, which is, I feel like all of the yes. holiday, like New York movies are fun because it is like the best time to be in New York is Christmas time. All right. So when I was yes. trying to come up with a crime for this one, obviously I did some of the usual stuff like I murder at yes. a skating rink, you know, like what are the big things <laughs> that kind of jump out in this movie? So murder at an ice skating rink was one um, that I looked into. I also looked into um, some, I think I looked into like yeah. crazy crimes where like 
someone breaks up a wedding, if that was like a thing, because that's she right. goes running in at that one point and she's like, "Stop!" Oh, that's is right, it I missed over? that. You know, and the guy's like, "It's over," but it's over because it was called off. So then I was like, "Okay, well, they are also maybe there's like a department store murder because they keep coming back to the department store where they meet." And I am going to tell you, Vanya, the story of the murder of Vicki Morgan, the mistress what? to Alfred Bloomingdale, the heir to the Bloomingdale fortune. So Alfred Bloomingdale's grandfather co-founded and co-owned Bloomingdale's, which um, still exists today. And so I'm going to tell you the story of the murder of his of. Alfred, so that would be the Uh-oh. founder's grandson's mistress. And it's a wild, wacky, crazy uh, story. I'm, I think it was made into a movie called An Inconvenient Woman, oh. starring Rebecca De Mornay. So if you need another movie to check out, check. I haven't actually watched it. All right. So let me tell you a little bit about Vicki Morgan. She was born August 9th, 1952. Uh, she was a beautiful blonde girl with aspirations of becoming an actress or a model. But at 16, she got pregnant by her high school sweetheart. Uh, Her mother was extremely Catholic and religious. And so she was sent to um, a school for unwed mothers and had the baby, Mm -hmm. had the baby. And then her mom basically took the baby and said like, I'll help raise the baby because you know, you're 16 years old. So at 17, she moves to LA because she wants to be an actress and a model. And um, as she is pursuing those things, she meets and marries 47-year-old Earl Lamb. Yeah, wait. So yeah, uh, that's disgusting. She's 17. Yeah, she gets married. I'm assuming he must have had, you know, like money and I guess 47 now that I'm yeah. 39. I'm like, that's not so old. But when you're 17, I wouldn't that's want 30 to marry years. a 17 Like that man was 30 boy. when she was born. <laughs> in, a, in like, you know, whatever many years. Ew. No. Yeah. <laughs> so she is uh, 17 and married in Los Angeles. And one day she is having lunch at a restaurant called the Old World Restaurant on Sunset. And a certain Alfred Bloomingdale is also having lunch there and she catches his attention. So in true like creepy old Mm -mm. man picking up on a teenage girl, I guess, style, he goes up to her um, and he tells her that he has a daughter her age and um, his wife is out of town right now. But his daughter plays tennis and, you know, he's 57 and he hurt his knee. And so he can't really play tennis. Maybe Vicky Weird. would want to come over and play tennis with his daughter because his wife is out of town. Like, right? Super weird. But here's the deal. Alfred. <laughs> Alfred. I said that right, right? He's rich as as balls, you guys. So he's not only the heir to the um, the Bloomingdale department store fortune, he also yes. is uh, the I only know about it because I worked in restaurants and I was like, I don't card. even, Do you remember don't that? take Diners Club, man. Yeah, so like. He... I know, Big I think time. at a time though, back, this is yeah. the 1970s. Big time Diners Club, like, and he created that. So he's got money on top of his family money. He's like self-made rich plus born rich type of thing. So he's got a confident heir to him, but, you know, she's married. 
and uh She's like, ah, I'm married. Sorry. And he's like, no, it's just come play tennis with my daughter. That's all I want you to do. So uh, she gives him his number. And then um, they're going to meet for lunch like the following day. But let me tell you just a little bit more about Alfred Bloomingdale. Okay. And so he's married to Betsy Bloomingdale. That's his wife. She is a socialite. She was a prominent socialite and style icon. Um she was Roman Catholic. He was Jewish. After they got married, she converted him. Like, she got him to convert to Catholicism. And he would always make jokes that, you know, like, he was a Democratic <sighs> Jew who turned into a Republican Catholic all because of all because of his wife. Um, and they had three children together. And um, side note, because this will come up later. Oh, weird. Betsy, Alfred's wife's best friend, was Nancy Reagan. Okay, so after, you know, I guess I'm, I jumped the gun. He got her number, but he, she didn't agree to meet him right away. But he kept calling, and he kept calling, and he kept calling. Um, and finally, she agrees to meet him for lunch. They go back to the same restaurant, and there's a woman there with him. Kind of like, I guess, there maybe to scope her out. So they have lunch. She's like a little bit intrigued. Like, this guy is clearly powerful and important, but again, she's not sure. But she agrees to meet up with them again. The next time they meet, they meet in front of the Schwab's um, uh, pharmacy. You know, what was the place where oh, maybe, the yeah. actress got discovered, like having a milkshake? Or so it was maybe Schwab's diner? Um, okay, so they meet outside of there. And this time they're going to go to Alfred's house in the Hollywood Hills. And so he gets in his car and he has the woman that he brought with him get in the car with uh, Vicky. And as they're driving to his Hollywood Hills home, which is not his main house, this was Alfred's playhouse. This is what the woman says to Vicky in the car. This is a quote from what this woman said. Alfred has a real interest in you. And I'm here to tell you that he's going to beat you when he sees you at that house as he does all the hookers he sees. He will probably tie you up. He wants me to tell you this. He wants me to also let you know that you are special to him and that he Ew. will make special, what's the word? Allowances. Now, first of all, like you're, she's on her way. She's in the car, like driving, as this woman is basically saying, he's going to tie you up and beat you. Ew. But he thinks you're really cool, is like the gist of that. And she doesn't jump out of the car or like drop the lady off and immediately turn around, which I find odd. That would have been my reaction. But I guess, you know, she's 17 <gasps> and she's like, I guess we're going to see what happens here. Okay. So now the next, the next thing I'm going to read to you is, is a per a deposition that was made 10 years later in a court case. So this is a direct quote from a deposition given by Vicki Morgan about the first time she ever went to Alfred's playhouse so by the time this is a quote by the time alfred walked up there the two these two women were Ew. nude and i was told to take my clothes off and alfred was already <gasps> taking his off and he asked one of the girls to get the equipment which is alfred which is alfred bloomingdale's belt his ties that he wears around <clears throat> his neck and excuse me gentlemen a dildo <gasps> he then proceeded to have everyone line up against a wall and he beat them with his belt Alfred asked me, wasn't that fun? Alfred had a look in his eyes. Believe me when I say it, it was a look in his eyes and his face that scared me to death. 
He'd have these girls crawl on the floor and he would sit on their backs and drool. Okay. I mean, he'd drool. End of quote. Yeah. So Vicky, according to all of the articles written about her and about this whole story, she found Alfred both terrifying and fascinating. I'm guessing it's that kind of like thing when you're young where it's like what feels kind of dangerous. And probably because he had a lot of money too. It's kind of what you gravitate towards. Um, and he had a lot of money, you know, and so like nice fancy lunches and buying her pretty things and she's young. So after a few months into this affair that she begins with him, her husband finds out and he's pissed, right? Ew! But uh, all that happens is that Alfred offers to buy Vicky from him. Yeah. Disgusting. Like, yeah, you, that's as far like, as I know, uh, you can't actually trafficking. Buy, you, it's wrong to buy other human beings. Or and human trafficking. Sex trafficking, yes. Yeah. And so her husband is horrified. But at this point, she's kind of human trafficking. Yeah. Um, at this point, Vicky has kind of fallen under Alfred's spell. And she leaves her husband. So now she's officially Alfred's mistress. And he sets her up in a nice apartment and he gives her an allowance of $18,000 a month. Now, this is in the 70s. So if we like, that's I don't even crazy. know exactly what that would be today, but that's probably like giving her like $90,000 a month. Oh, today. I'd be like, thank you. So that is a lot. <laughs> I mean, $18,000 a month now to me, I'd be like, holy shit, I'm so rich. Uh, I'd be like, I'm so, so rich. Um, but Alfred wants more than just sex from Vicky. He basically wants her to be like his second wife there for him in more than just a sexual way and always available to him when he needs her. So she's being paid to basically be available to him at all times. Um, And less than a year into the (gasps) affair, Betsy Bloomingdale's best friend saw Alfred out with Vicky. And if you guys don't remember, Betsy's best friend was Nancy Reagan. So she actually saw them. And then... Betsy sees Alfred with Vicky outside a hair salon where she and her daughter are getting their hair done and she confronts him and basically like think, you know, these like people that have all this money. She's she knows about him sleeping around. She knows about this, but she's like, how dare you? do this in public how dare you make it possible for like you to be seen with this woman how dare you humiliate me and now look you've humiliated your daughter you know all this stuff incidentally when he would take vicky to parties he would tell people that she was his daughter which is also disgusting and creepy um but so so vicky so vicky is like in this affair totally kind of controlled thinking she's in love with this guy but clearly you know he's abusive and powerful coercive and she was 17 when it all started so it definitely feels a little you know like she's kind of a like uh-huh. a yeah she's been coerced and being gas lit being gaslit is that how you, he's gaslighting her he's telling her all the time he's going to leave his wife um and he promises that no matter what he's going to take care of her for the rest of her life so eventually alfred is no longer satisfied by just Vicky and he starts inviting other women to participate in in their sex life which always includes some form of BDSM and uh, Vicky described Alfred like a Jekyll and Hyde type with a Marquis de Sade uh, complex and she believed that his sexual proclivities were a sickness that he was like a truly like sick man that had serious like sexual problems huh. and so at some point alfred agrees to go to therapy with vicky which i just 
part of me is like, this is just such a crazy story, right? So this is a married prominent figure who's now like, <sighs> okay, I'll go see a therapist with my mistress, you know, like, cause that's normal. Um, but unfortunately, he's never able to overcome his dark sexual needs. And Vicky tries to leave him. She's like, okay, I can't do this. So she runs off to Europe. And she um, changes her phone number multiple times. But being the powerful man that he Ew. is, he knows people in the higher ups at the phone company. And he's always able to track her down. Um, yeah. And so she just can't seem to get away from him. So in 1975, Vicky marries John David Carson, an actor that she'd actually met through Alfred. So this is like someone she was introduced to by him. Now she's marrying him. But Alfred is determined to sabotage their marriage and get Vicky back. So he's constantly harassing them, yeah. calling all of the time. He again offers to pay to buy her from her now second husband. Um, and the per this persistent harassment leads to the end of Vicky and John's marriage yes, less than a year after it starts. Like he can't handle it. And so Vicky returns to Alfred and he puts her up again in a nice new apartment and the large monthly allowance begins. And um, yeah. one thing Vicky did do uh, was spend that allowance with abandon. So she went on shopping sprees and vacations and bought herself a Mercedes Benz. She bought gifts for all of her friends. But the thing is, is that she was, you know, even though she had like everything in the world she could buy, she was bored out of her mind. She had had all these aspirations of being an actress or a model. She's doing nothing. She has to be available to Alfred at all times. She only has a landline. So she's basically stuck waiting around for him to call. And she never knows when that will be. And she's just really, really bored. Um, and Alfred, meanwhile, is like promising still that he's going to leave his wife, but he never does. So fed up with, again, just being his side piece that, you know, sits and waits for him all the time. She begins dating in 1978 a real estate uh, man named Robert Shulman. And despite the constant harassment and offers to pay or to buy her back, <laughs> Vicky and Robert decide to get married. But their union yeah. lasts less than six months. And again, Vicky returns to Alfred. Um, but she is actually quite devastated at the, the, like the d dissolution of this marriage. And she is so depressed that she actually goes and stays in a mental health facility at Cedar sinai that Alfred pays to send her to so she can get help with her depression. And then after she comes out of there, she is moved into a new home in Beverly Hills. And she's back to just basically being like under this man's thumb. And okay, so let's... Pause there. So she's the, still the mistress, right? Now I want to talk a little bit about the Reagans and their relationship to Alfred and Betsy Bloomingdale. So as I already told you, Betsy and Nancy Reagan are best friends. But Alfred has also been an integral part of Ronald Reagan's like inner circle. He is a member of what was called Reagan's Kitchen Cabinet. And for anyone who doesn't know, a kitchen cabinet is a group of unofficial advisors to a politician. And so for years and years, Alfred has been giving Ronald Reagan political and financial advice and was part of his inner, inner circle. So when Reagan was elected president, Vicky was actually invited to the inaugural ball, but she decided not to go. Now, aside from the fact that obviously she could have gotten the invite from Alfred, she actually got invited because she had done some work on Reagan's campaign at Alfred's behest. She basically worked there as a mailing list checker. Um, so she got the invite as a campaign worker. She decides not to go, but she does fly to D.C. and stays in a hotel near the ball because Alfred wanted her there for his fun after 
the party, the inaugural ball ended. So in the summer of 1981, Alfred is diagnosed with throat cancer and it's, it's bad. Like it's, it's, he's not going to get better. So Vicky visits sure. Alfred at the hospital every single day. And this infuriates Betsy, even though she's too, yeah, even though she's too busy with like her social schedule and her children, all that stuff to, to visit him every day. She thinks it's appalling that his mistress is coming every single day to the hospital. And while he was in the hospital, Alfred drew up an agreement that left Vicky like a two years of a $10,000 per month allowance plus half of his Uh-oh. shares in showbiz pizza, oh. which I, do you know what showbiz pizza is? I, uh, it's like Chuck E. Cheese. It, it's like a different version of Chuck E. Cheese. So I guess he ha- had some stock in that and he gave her yeah. half the shares. I don't think they're still in business. So it wasn't actually the, the most generous of gifts. Um, so this is drawn up while he's in hospital. And then eventually Alfred is sent back to his home to be cared for at the home by nurses. Um, and Vicky continues to visit him at his home in Bel Air until Betsy puts an end to that and instructs the guards at the gates not to allow any visitors into their home. So I guess Bel Air is like that fancy of a neighborhood that like to even get into the neighborhood oh. is like a guarded gate and you have to have like a key code or be let in just to the neighborhood. So she's no longer able to see him. But in June of 1982, Alfred manages to sneak out of his home and he meets Vicky for lunch. And this will be the last time that the two would ever see each other. So because he's so sick and dying, Betsy takes over the family finances and she puts an end to Vicky's monthly checks. Uh, and that was promised to her, right? So she was receiving them. And then he drew up something with her in the hospital that he was going to, for the next two years, she was going to get $10,000 a month. So Vicky decides to hire celebrity lawyer Marvin Mitchelson. And she files a palimony suit for $11 million dollars. This is where she provides a 231-page um, deposition describing their relationship and sex life over the 12 years that they've been together. Um, and in the suit, Vicky uh, claims okay. that she was not just his like lover, but she was also his sex therapist. Um, so that description that I read to you earlier about what happened, that's from this deposition. So a week after the suit's filed, Alfred dies at the hospital. Um Betsy Bloomingdale's lawyers argue that the suit should be dismissed on the grounds that the arrangement was a contract for prostitution and therefore not legally binding. Um, But Vicky is determined. And so she keeps going forward with the suit. But then her relationship with her lawyer kind of dissolves after he accepts a request from Mark Mason, Ronald Reagan's special assistant in political affairs, to come to D.C. for a meeting about this lawsuit. And in this meeting, Mason and Mitchelson discussed Vicky and the case and the palimony suit because the situation was embarrassing for the Reagans. Vicky and her claims were splashed all over the papers. And seeing how Alfred was part of Ronald Reagan's inner circle and Betsy was Nancy Reagan's best friend, the Reagans could not have this suit go on. It needed to be squashed. It needed to stop because it was embarrassing for them. So that's already just kind of like, why would her lawyer take that meeting one? But I guess when the president calls you go so with with now no money and her name being dragged through the mud vicky was spiraling she had to move out of her beverly hills condo and into a studio city apartment she was becoming increasingly paranoid and afraid that betsy bloomingdale and maybe even the reagans were going to come after her because 
of what she knew and what she was, you know, saying about them. And uh, she even started going by a different name to protect herself, feeling like she'd gotten in over her head to try to take on this very powerful uh, family. And then the judge in her case threw out most of her palimony suit and Vicky was devastated. So the only thing that he didn't throw out was the shares that like maybe there was something there that was legally like binding. Um, and so in November of 1982, Vicky hires a TV screenwriter named Gordon Basakis. I don't know how to say his last name. Basakis, Basakis, um, to help her write her tell-all book that she wants to be titled Alfred's Mistress. And uh, turns uh, out she ends up also having an affair with with Gordon, the writer, that is very tumultuous. <gasps> she ends up firing him after eight months um, because he hit her. Like, so he was like, they were in a sexual relationship the whole time, but then he, he hit her. So she broke up with him. And it turns out that they hadn't done all that much writing. Like, she would like dictate and he would do tape he had a tape recordings and then he was supposed to write stuff but he hadn't hadn't even written a chapter when she fired him so by 1990 1983 sorry vicky was broke she'd sold her mercedes and jewelry to pay for her son todd's school tuition um and so broke was she that she actually invited an old friend a man named marvin pancoast to come and be her roommate to help like split the cost um Vicky had met Marvin when she was a patient at that mental health center at Cedar sinai because he was also there for depression. So let me tell you a little bit about the roommate, uh, Marvin. He was 33 years old, and at the time that he moved in with Vicky, he was a Xerox operator at the William Morris Agency. Uh, he was well-liked by his coworkers. He was nice but scattered, is how they described him. Uh, Marvin had ambitions of being a hairstylist, but struggles with mental health and alcohol alcoholism kept him from achieving this goal. And just uh, a random like note: in the 1970s, Marvin actually made the, the oh. newspapers when he stood oh on the roof the roof of the Hyatt Hotel on Sunset Boulevard and threatened to jump off. So he had a a, a long history of struggling with mental illness. So. The two roomies talked about the lives that they should have had. Vicky was depressed because there was no interest in her book that was, you know, not even really being, not really, it was, she was shopping it around. It hadn't even been written yet, but there was very little interest mm. in it because I guess most of the details were made public because of the deposition. So it was like, what is it that you have to tell us that we don't know? And um, so she's really spiraling. Her diet oh. at this uh, point in time uh, consisted of candy bars, whiskey, wine, Valium, and cocaine. And soon she couldn't afford to stay in the Studio City apartment. <laughs> um, so after only living together there for three weeks, they've they have to they've decided to move out and not continue to be roommates because Marvin felt like Vicky kind of treated him like her errand boy, and she was not contributing anything financially. So yeah. he was actually the one paying the bills when the idea was that they were going to like split the cost of things. So on July seventh, nineteen eighty three. At 3.20 a.m., Marvin Pankos walked into a North Hollywood police station and asked to speak oh. to a homicide detective. When asked if he'd witnessed a murder, he said no, <gasps> he'd committed one. He had beaten his roommate, Vicki Morgan, to death with a baseball bat. When police arrived at the apartment, they found Vicki dead in her bed, the room full of half-packed moving boxes. So Marvin is placed under arrest, but then... He recants his confession, and his first defense lawyer um, tells 
like publicly states that there are sex tapes of Vicky with prominent people in the Reagan administration and that that is why she was killed. Oh my God. And that's going to become a big part of the trial. So I want to read to you Dominic Dunn. Dominic Dunn wrote um, an article in Vanity Fair about this. So I wanted to just read to you a couple of excerpts from it. Um, and then I'll tell you a little bit about what happens with the trial. So the next stuff I'm sharing with you is from The Woman Who Knew Too Little from September 1984, Vanity Fair, written by Dominic Dunn. So wasn't it just too convenient that this woman should end up dead, broke, and at the breaking point? Did Vicki Morgan threaten to sell the sex tapes if she was not bought off? Surely, people speculated, Marvin Pancoast had been planted in her house three weeks before her death. Was Pancoast taking the rap for a crime he did not commit, for which he would be found insane, serve a short sentence, and be well remunerated? His clothes had not been blood splattered after the murder. There were no fingerprints, and the drawers had been ransacked. Where were the tapes? Where was the tell-all memoir Vicky was supposed to be writing? So they couldn't find any of those things in her apartment. All right. Uh-huh. And so this is another excerpt from the article. Rumor dies hard, though. Shortly after I arrived in Los Angeles, a friend of mine, a movie star, said to me, Oh, no, darling. Marvin's not guilty. We knew Marvin. He worked for my ex-husband. Nutty as a fruitcake, yes. A murderer, no. Did you know that the CIA went into Marilyn's house afterwards and cleaned out everything? I bet they did that at Vicky's, too. That's where the tapes went. So these sex tapes get mentioned by his lawyer, but then no one can find them and verify that they exist. Um, so that is going to be something that comes up in trial. So one of the, this is another excerpt. One of the most fascinating aspects of the case was the colossal ineptitude of the police work. No fingerprints were taken at the scene of the crime. An officer lamely explained that since Marvin Pancos had confessed, the police didn't see any point in taking prints, nor did they seal the house afterwards. Therefore, anyone possessing a key had access to it in the days following the murder. A strange state of affairs in a case in which missing tapes, both audio and video, played such a large part. The coroner testified that when he arrived at the murder scene at 7 o'clock in the morning, he was not able to examine the murder weapon, the baseball bat, for blood, skin, or hair because the police had sealed it in a plastic bag. It is an almost elementary fact of police work that evidence containing blood or any body fluid is never wrapped in plastic, only paper or cloth, because plastic creates a humidity chamber that will destroy the blood evidence. All right. Right. So in trial, um, basically, the def- his defense says that he didn't, you know, he did not commit the murder. And they kind of try to they keep trying to bring up the sex tape things. Right. But since they can't produce them, eventually the judge right. like, throws it out. And he's like, any mention of the sex tapes is no longer allowed because you, you, you guys have to provide them to use them as a defense. So then they try to basically say that that writer, Gordon Basikis, Basikis, that, you know, they had been in a violent relationship, had broken up like a week before she was killed, Mm -hmm. um, and that he was like a more likely subject, right? But Um, but my, I'm wondering like who made him confess? Like why did he confess, you know? Sorry. Did they get to that? Very cool, interesting article. Well, it's so it's, so, well, it's interesting. There's a lot of speculating. So basically what happens is the defense really tries hard to paint this like huge conspiracy that, you know, either the government or this other boyfriend, all because of what she knew is the reason that she was killed and that Marvin was just like a scapegoat and he didn't, he wasn't part of it. Like, I think they even suggested that uh, Gordon, the TV writer, had brought an accomplice. So he held on to her dog that she had while someone else beat her to death. And then he 
brainwashed Marvin into believing that he had done it. And like people audibly laughed when they tried to use that defense. He is ultimately found guilty and sentenced to 26 years in jail. And what people who know him say is that he was like described as which a, one, Gordon a person or who coll- collected celebrity phone oh. numbers and was obsessed with fame and that, oh, sorry, Marvin, that Marvin was a collector of celebrity phone numbers. He always had these like menial jobs, but they were always within the entertainment industry. And that when he moved in with Vicky, he thought that she was like, famous because she was this mistress on all the tabloids and when it turned out that she was just falling apart and she wasn't really famous that he could make himself famous by killing her and then he was obsessed with fame there are still many people though that believe that um marvin might have been paid to do this by others it is you know it's very interesting that after three weeks what you'd be like so frustrated with your roommate even though you guys are about to move out and not together anymore and that you would, that you would kill her. Um, and so that is the sad, wow. sordid story of the murder. I love the tie in. That's Bloomy a great mistress, tie in. And I know and I say it all the time, but I love how, you know, how you're finding these I, uh, crimes that we're not really hearing about necessarily, you know, like there's, as we all know, there's multiple true crime <laughs> podcasts out there. So I think it's really fun. You have such a fun challenge right. and you're, Killing it every week. Killing it. Well, thank you. I, I am enjoying the challenge. I'm always excited I like to see what to you come up with. Yeah. Creatively yes. find true, true, true stories, yeah. you know, that fit the bill. Yes. Oh, well, thank you. And um, thank you guys for listening. Happy New we, Year. Um, we love you so much, Wrong Yay. Criminals. We hope that you have the most wonderful holiday season and a yes, happy, bye, happy love New you. Year. Thank you. And we will see you in January for our new season four. We love you. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Rom Crime. We hope you all have a wonderful, happy, healthy new year. We will see you all later in January for season four. Till next month. <laughs>